Life Audio. Hey, welcome back to the Gospel Rant. I'm Dr. Bill Senior with Gospel App Ministries. So last time, I looked at the first of three reasons why I disagree with almost all of the experts on the Song of Songs. So this time, we're going to look at two more. And to be clear, I'm not saying that everyone else is evil or crazy or wrong. In fact, I've benefited tremendously from other scholarship. I enjoy interacting with other scholars on this topic. I just think that there is a much better approach that only highlights the gospel of Jesus Christ in the Old Testament. I'm just saying. So I'm injecting this approach into the dialogue, and and I think it's got wings. I gave a paper about it a few years ago at SBL and was very well received, and particularly since there was one scholar in the audience who had just finished a commentary on the literal dramatic view that I disagreed with. And he was reasonably kind with his feedback. I mean, I guess I'll give him that uh, benefit of the doubt. Um, Reasonably so. Uh, So anyway, let's get back to the two reasons that I disagree with, with him. All right. But before we do, let's get a word from our sponsors. Hi, everyone. If you've been injured in an accident that was not your fault, listen up. We have legal professionals standing by to answer your questions for free. Call now and find out if you have a case and how much it's potentially worth. Call 800-497-4410. I'm here with spokesman John Wolfe. So, John, tell everyone listening who should call right now. Well, Maria, first off, thank you for having me here. It's always nice to answer the listeners' questions. Now, as far as who should call in... Anyone who's been injured in an accident and think you deserve compensation, give us a call right now. 800-497-4410. You'll find out if you have a case and how much it's potentially worth. Thanks, John. You heard it, folks. Take advantage of this opportunity and call now. 800-497-4410. Advertisement sponsored by Legal Help Center may not be available in all states. All right, so I've dumped a great deal of material on you so far. You're doing great. You're hanging in there. We're going to get to the actual text next podcast. And listen, you don't have to understand everything that I said or agree with it. I appreciate your attention, your desire to grow as Christians, and your desire to hear a different opinion, to talk about it, to dialogue. We need to do that more. All right? So the first reason that I brought up in the last podcast that I think this prophetic marriage gospel approach uh, is is valuable is that it would have been so familiar to the Old and New Testaments and the writers and the participants, right? Check out Hosea 2, Isaiah 50, Isaiah 54, Jeremiah 2, Isaiah, uh, Jeremiah 32, 33, Ezekiel 16. Check out all of the New Testament references by Jesus of the bride and the bridegroom. None of this would have seemed strange. I just, I'm just surprised that it's taken us so long to get to it. Again, I think dualism, ancient dualism, platonic dualism has affected things since the the Jews were interpreting it before Jesus. All right, so the second reason for the prophetic marriage gospel approach is how the Jews have traditionally used the song. Now, see, that's important. How did the Jews actually use, apply the Song of Songs? Well, Song of Songs is the first of five megalot, the scrolls, each of which is a biblical book 
that's traditionally read on a specific annual liturgical occasion. So Lamentations is read on Tishba Ba'av, the ninth of the Hebrew month of Av. Um, Ruth is read on Pentecost, Ecclesiastes on Sukkot, Esther on Purim. The Song of Songs is read on Passover. Well, that's relevant, right? (coughs) So why is a collection of poems, love poems, charged with relationally expressive and felt love and even sexual imagery used annually, I mean, probably since the exile to get Jews to remember the Exodus and Sinai, the giving of the law, right? Doesn't that make you scratch your head? Well, it does me. What value would this collection have to a bunch of dehumanized, beat-up, unlovable slaves in Egypt who had to feel forsaken by their God? Uh, Or their modern relatives who have long felt oppressed still. I mean, it seems a very strange choice, right? It, it seems a little out of sync. All right, let's, let's remember Exodus. This is 2.23 to 25. During that long period, the king of Egypt died. The Israelites groaned in their slavery and cried out, and their cry for help because of their slavery went up to God. God heard their groaning, and he remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. So God looked on the Israelites and was concerned about them. Well, pretty familiar, but if you were a Jewish slave in Egypt and your people had been there over 200 years, enslaved over over 100 plus years, and and some think it's even longer, um, think think about it contextually. If, If you have been in Egypt since the beginning of the 1800s, and you were slaves since the uh, time of World War I, I mean, how would that affect your self-worth and identity and and, uh, your relationship with God, right? And so here, put yourself in that sandal, and let me ask you you the question, would an allegorical understanding of the Song of Songs make sense to you? God is pure spirit, and he's untouchable, even by the Pharaoh. You're just a slave. You're soiled. You're dirty. Right? Your spirit's all busted up, even if it's still there. And his love, whatever a slave thought that might look like or feel like, right? Slaves would have different kind of concepts of love. Well, it's there for you. Yeah, I guess. But here's a list of things you need to do perfectly. First of all, you have to separate your spirit from your soul and do these exercises to rise to God. Oh, by the way, while you're making bricks. Uh, Look, come on. Uneducated slaves have been beat up all their lives, have been told that they're nothing, they're unworthy of any social status, shame people. What What are they going to make out of that? Is that valued to them? Or how about a, slaves? Here's a marriage book. You know, God, you're, he remembers you, and uh, what you need is a marriage manual. So slave husbands, you can be better husbands, and slaves' wives, you can be better wives. You're welcome. <laughs> Does it, Right. No, if you're a traditional Jew and and once a year you're trying to remember the Exodus, you're trying to get it back into your gut so you can remember who you are and who God is for you. And you're trying to get its meaning to you and your people. And you're trying to get it into the heads of those generational slaves. What do you imagine they're thinking or afraid of or desire? Well, I'm worried what God will do when he sees me face to face. When God's all-seeing eyes, look into my soul. What's going to happen to me then? I mean, I'm already getting beat up by the Pharaoh or by the Nazis or by whoever. 
Is he going to be angry, ashamed of me, disgusted when God sees all of my dark secrets, my lack of faith, my struggles? Well, you know, another exile. Um, or uh, we deserve suffering. I'm ashamed of what I've done and what's gone into my life since since I was last really in the presence of God. I've sinned. I brought it on myself. What will God do to me when I stand before him in the land? Thinking of exile. Why would God want to associate with me? Look at us. What, what's the catch with this new relationship with God? I mean, come on, we've, we've been under tyrants before. What are the new rules? And what happens when we mess up? Or, you know, I'm okay, God loving his people, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and me, uh, kind of messed up. Or, here's a th- slave thing, it's all too good to believe. And if it's too good to believe, ah, it's too good to believe. So, what, what, what would all that make to them? Let me summarize uh, the concerns into three overarching statements. Is there anyone out there for me? Can you hear a slave saying that? Or, or a beat-up Jew in the Holocaust? Or a Jew sense? Is there anyone really out there for me? Second, is there anyone that I can really count on to have my back when I mess up again? See, as a slave, I was largely on my own. I, if I did well, I was rewarded. If I messed up, I'd be punished. So I need someone who I can count on you know, when, when I'm caught or when Pharaoh's army has me in a corner or, where, or when I'm wandering in the desert or when I have to face all the Canaanite armies, who's going to stand alongside of me, fight for me when all hell breaks loose again? And why would they? And lastly, is there anyone out there who would really love me as I am, who wants to be with me, who's going to identify with me among all the nations? You know, this is what I want as well. All those three things. So here's the second reason that I think this is a love song from God to beat up people, because that seems to be its purpose over the ages, I mean, since the time of exile and traditional Passover celebrations, right? Think Roman occupation, think um, the Greek occupation, think, right, the Holocaust, ongoing oppression. Doesn't it make sense that a love song from God to them would be a great thing? Hard to imagine, hard to believe, but valuable, to them, far more than allegorical or literal, relevant. Right? Well, third and final reason why I disagree with just about every other commentary out there, and we'll get to it after these words from our sponsors. Welcome back. The third reason to see the Song of Songs, I think, is a prophetic marriage gospel, is... Not just because that's pretty common in the Old and New Testament, or that that's how the Jews seem to have used it in Passover, but it's how uh, contemporaries of the Jews might have heard the Song of Songs. Have you ever heard of the love song of Shusin? Some people think it's the oldest love song that we've dug up. And we're always digging up new things that help us understand the minds of the people and the ancient, how they worked. Uh, so we're trying to get to the core of what the 8th century uh, BCE Israelite might have heard as the Song of Songs was read aloud in, at Passover. So check this out. Remember the prologue of the Song of Songs? Let me read it so you're reminded. Let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth, for your love is more delightful than wine. Pleasing is the fragrances of your perfumes. Your name is like perfume poured out. No wonder the maidens love you. Take me away with you. Let us hurry. Let the king bring me into his chambers. Okay, pretty familiar. Now check out the love song of Shu Sin. 
Bridegroom, you have captivated me. Let me stand tremblingly before you. Bridegroom, I would be taken by you to the bedchamber. Bridegroom, let me caress you. My precious caress is more savory than honey. In the bedchamber, honey-filled, let us enjoy your goodly beauty, lion. Let me caress you. Familiar? And I could read you much more that would you would just go, oh my goodness, those are so familiar. It seems like it's a little different, but the familiarities are amazing. Well, here's something you may not know. This love song was written in Sumer as early as 2000 BCE, well over a millennia before the Song of Songs. It would have been the time and the region from whence God called Abraham to go to Canaan, right? Or the Chaldees, Sumer. We know that these love poems were used in religious liturgy because that's where they were dug up in the royal court again. But now many scholars believe that they were originally just the common street love songs, ditties sung in the taverns, the fields and playgrounds by real people, real teenagers, real children. Everyone knew the poetry and lyrics. You know, we've had many of these for a long time, but they were written off by biblical scholars as being part of annual pagan rituals. But you know what? We found evidence in Sumer and in Mesopotamia and even in Egypt that most likely long before they were absconded for use in the temple and in the royal courts, you know, they were just on the streets. They're love songs that that region, that entire region would have been familiar with. So, so just for fun, let's put ourselves in his or her sandals. Well, her sandals, Israel, 8th century BCE. Uh, you're an anxious young teenage girl living in Israel just before the Assyrians came and destroyed everything and took you and your family into exile. By the way, girls typically got betrothed and married when they were 12, 13, 14, right? So this is the kind of girl who's singing these songs, the queen. And as you look at your reflection, you're, you're a teen. You may be struggling to see what kind of woman you could possibly be, you know, that can evolve from your thin, spindly body. You're just beginning to grow taller and adding curves where curves will be. And recently, you had your first monthly period, and you're, sorry, you're in that gray area between being a child, dependent upon your parents and caregivers, and being a woman, or a wife, a mother. So you're likely asking internally the same questions that young teens today are asking. Am I attractive? Am I lovable? Is there someone there for me? Will I find someone who really loves me as I am? Will I be a good lover? Will my partner be a good and faithful lover? Will they be turned on by me? I don't know how they put it back then. Will I, when I look into their eyes, will I see how excited they are to be with me? Will I feel special? Will I be happy? Will it last? Or will my partner not like what he sees? And particularly when he finds all of my dark secrets. Again, te like teenagers today. So, so here's where the fun begins. In your village, as it was for generations before, once betrothed, you are swept into a gl glamorous, romantic rite of passage. Think Hollywood production, a grand rom-com narrative structure, a love story where you take on the persona of a royal queen and the love poems. And every one of your girlfriends knows the many songs. They make up some of the top 40 in your region, in your community, you know the tunes by heart, and they sing them to you, you sing them to them, and, and when you become anxious, betrothed, they bring you some hope and peace and joy and some fun, and when your critical inner voice rises up and says, you're not going to find love or be loved, 
He won't find you attractive. Well, those songs give you hope. So why the popularity of the songs? Well, imagine the power of a story where any young girl, no matter who she was, what tribe she came from, whether she was attractive, wealthy, or smart, she could for a moment ascend her day-to-day rigors and anxieties and become a queen. Right? In the ritual, she would become a person of honor, worthy of attention and worth, because she borrowed an ancient story, just like the many women before her, generations of. And the songs are powerful. When you become anxious, they bring you peace and joy. When you're critical and her voice rises up and says, not you, you're not going to be loved, they're going to give you hope. And you'd heard them sung since you were a young girl. You likely giggled when you heard some of the risque banter, even before you understood what the metaphors meant. You're not in this play alone. You have your trusted girlfriends by your side. Perhaps some have already been through the process. Perhaps others are about to begin theirs. They're on the stage with you by your side. Think modern weddings. And mostly they sing the familiar, passionate, and rhapsodic love songs that define the journey. In a sense, it's a well-established liturgy. Your nuptials become a communal, sacred marriage. In one sense, we moderns can relate. Typically, on the day of our marriages, we dress up in expensive gowns and tuxes, portraying ourselves as people of honor and worth. We're kings and queen for a day. All our friends and family participate in the liturgy. We choose bridesmaids and groomsmen. And when the bride enters the room to a musical fanfare, do royalty. All stand at attention, all silent, all gazing at your glory. And I will say more when we get to movement four, the Song of Songs. So back to our young teenager. She is injected with the crack cocaine of an ancient love story that has captured so many other women. It's now her story. She's learning how to process the new emotional hormones and the awkward new feelings as it is today. It's a steep learning curve. This is the all too common rite of passage that God incarnates to communicate his incongruous love for the unlovable, right? So, you know, in Sumer, she may break into her community's variety of the hit songs that rejoice the heart. Bridegroom, you've captivated me. Let me stand tremblingly before you. Bridegroom, I would be taken by you to the bedchamber. Bridegroom, let me caress you. But in Israel, it would sound like, let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth. Take me away with you. Let us hurry. Let the king bring me into his chambers. And by the way, in in the Song of Songs, she switches to a royal we that's bothered commentators forever. But why? You know, it's in the ancient songs. That's how queens talk. And everybody would have understood it because that was in the songs. So we rejoice, she says, and delight in you. We will praise your love more than wine. How right they are to adore you. See, I'm suggesting that all, or at least most of the young girls and boys who heard the Song of Songs would have recognized the prologue. It would have proclaimed good news to God's unlikely bride. The bride queen is in the arms of her lover, husband, king, and she's loving it. She's crying out for more kisses, more everything. It's good. She feels loved for a moment. She has forgotten her fears and insecurities, her dark secrets and hidden sins. It doesn't seem to be causing the king any hesitation to embrace her. Her critical inner voice was wrong. And listen, we're going to find out that she does have a problem that renders her unrighteous, so much so that no righteous king would ever associate with her. But it works out because the king does. In fact, 
The gift of love changes her, purifies her, redeems her. That's what grace does. Right. I'm just saying, look, in closing, if God were to sing about the depths of his heart to you, whether married or single, what would it sound like? Now, if I ask what would it look like, the only correct answer is the life and death of Jesus. Paul in Romans 5, God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. But I ask what would it sound like? Well, how about a collection of love songs penned and sung by God himself for you and people like you? Well, that would be something, right? Well, to be more precise and more shocking, the rightful, glorious king of all creation loves you so much that he intentionally went, found, and incarnated popular, very familiar love ballads sung by generations of actual girls and boys in villages and tribes scattered from the Tigris and Euphrates River Valley, Anatolia, right, modern Turkey, the region of Judea, all the way to Egypt, and no doubt beyond. His courses would sound familiar, but be far better, imbued with the power of the gospel. The songs not only express true love for the unlovable, but the unlovable are made to feel loved. You know, the world just sucks that out of us. And if you think about it, doesn't it just make so much sense that God would use a genre that was so familiar to regular people on the street? You know, I get it. He wouldn't want the message to be missed or absconded by theologians or commentators or the educated, the elite, the wealthy. So look, to be clear, I am suggesting that God began with mere rough body street ditties, earthy, rhythmic strains that one might hear in bars, by workers of the field. But what God does with the genre is magical. The portrait of love he paints is nothing like anything that's been there before. And here's the point. When God sung these songs into canon, everybody then knew the tune. They already knew the imagery. They already knew the point. God was speaking his heart for his surprised, fearful, and unlikely bride who had reputations of looking for gross counterfeits anywhere and everywhere, right? Think Gomer. Slaves in Egypt might have heard that there was a holy God who actually could love slaves, maybe even them. Right? Look, I got to tell you, the song is perhaps the clearest and most provocative and boldest presentation of the gospel of Jesus Christ ever penned. And it never mentions Jesus. Unfortunately, it's one of the most often overlooked and dismissed. Um, and by the way, it's also a great example of evangelism, right? It presents God's love to lonely, wounded souls and minds. It's the word of canon. It's empowered by the Holy Spirit in our inner being. Yeah? All right. Enough delay. Next podcast, we're going to actually get into the first movement of the Song of Songs. Lots of fun. I'd like to thank lifeaudio.com for their support and platform. Make sure you give me feedback, Bill, at gospel-app.com. Do you agree? Do you disagree? Are you confused? Do you have questions? You know, I'd love to, to hear what you have to say. You can pick up my first book, uh, co-authored with Colleen Pepper. It's on Amazon, The Kiss of God. Uh, I'm rewriting that book. should be out by the end of the year, I hope. Looking for a publisher. Uh, but it's going to include a lot of things we'll be talking about on our podcast, so you'll be a, a step a, ahead. Uh, it'll also be a workbook, video series, uh, hopefully right now media. More info to come. 
Take heart, child of God. Hey friend, I'm Brooke McLaughlin, host of the Everyday Prayers Podcast, a ministry of million praying moms. And I'm here to invite you to partner with God for the hearts of your children on the daily. Our goal at Everyday Prayers is to help moms understand and pray God's word. Join us each weekday as we share insights from God's word for today's Christian mom. Tune in to the Everyday Prayers Podcast in your favorite app or by visiting lifeaudio.com.